Botokai Silo. For ex-lovers and strays from the path of least resistance. More so a matter of convenience than timing. Lisa and I thought it was an original idea to get married at the Hillsborough County Courthouse on Valentine's Day in 2011. I'd left my girlfriend and her four kids a Dear John letter that morning, fearing the kind of passionate and volatile precursor that could potentially end with an impromptu trip to Pinellas County Correctional. After scurrying to pack two bags of assorted books and clothes that no longer fit, I'd slipped out the back door some 20 minutes after my girlfriend had left for work and caught the 5.30 bus to Tampa. Lisa and I smoked several bowls she had smuggled onto the flight from Phoenix, and once the initial hesitancy had subsided, the courthouse was packed with an ample share of cheap lovers and quick annulments. I was sweating over the pipe I'd left in the shrubbery outside the building, having spaced on the metal detectors and Homeland Security's elevated risk awareness. We exchanged vows with whispers, posed for a wedding photo we didn't purchase, gathered our paperwork, and decided to wander around Tampa before returning to the hotel under the pretense there would be a midnight dip in the jacuzzi. Lisa had three more free nights on her reservation as part of her payout contract from Southwest Airlines and wanted to take advantage of the amenities while she had the chance. Back in the room and exhausted from the mugginess, she smoked more weed while she called her brother Zach to share the news. No, I haven't told him yet. I was going to wait a little longer. I'm not sure what Dad would say. Why? What do you think his reaction would be? <laughs> I mean, it is sudden, but I'm pretty sure he expects that kind of stuff from you by now. What's his name, anyway? Anthony. Not... No, it's not Crazy Anthony. I hope not. Anybody but that guy, please. Anthony Martinez had a Master of Humanities degree and taught a curriculum for children with behavior disorders at Highland High. While employed as his assistant in a portable classroom, Lisa developed a somewhat intimidated attraction as they found themselves eating breakfast and lunch together five days a week. But considering past employment experiences and her recent luck with dating, neither one made a move in that direction. That summer, she was introduced to Crazy Anthony by her younger brother at a local bar in Albuquerque. He was tall, thin, olive-toned, and supposedly a former remote bomber for an Army Black Ops tactical force whose missions were carried out in several undisclosed locations of Southeast Asia. At first, she chalked his stories up to being the kind of fodder you hear from the male ego, lies meant to impress upon her his mysterious and dangerous personality. One day, as they were sitting in a corner booth, 
at the May Cafe. See that waiter? He pointed to a lanky Vietnamese man in his mid-40s hunched over an empty table with a dirty rag. He's in a gang. Watch this. Anthony signaled as if he were waiting for the check. Yes, sir. Botokai Silo? The waiter's face went pale. Lisa thought he was going to shit his pants. Choko Song Silo. He slapped the ticket on the table and scurried back to the kitchen, where voices began to stammer with incited anxiety as the couple made their way to the exit. Anthony couldn't understand Lisa's obsession with learning Spanish. He would often remark on her awkward gait, citing that you convey plenty about who you are with body language. There's little need for words, even less for spit words. He'd grown up in New York City as the bastard of a drug-addled prostitute whose pimp was Hispanic. When the state finally intervened, he was moved from foster home to foster home, landing in an upstate orphanage where he was, quote-unquote, butt-fucked by an older Puerto Rican boy from Connecticut. So being adopted by an older Jewish family, and although Anthony never claimed to be religious, he loved to show off the menorah tattooed on the back of his neck. One night, a condom slipped off. Lisa's short pregnancy became a catalyst for his manic mood swings. As the arguments turned into drunken brawls, she confided to her brother, one point of interest being an incident when Anthony had held a kitchen knife to her throat. Zach and his friends stopped by the house, but Anthony was only intimidated momentarily and continued to torment Lisa until she finally got an abortion. The subsequent fallout did little to sway Zach from using her walk-in closet as a grill room for his latest crop. And when Anthony found out, he promptly threatened to narc if Lisa didn't continue their relationship. He bought her new furniture, called her mother and spoke at length about the abortion and dope plants. He had the furniture repossessed, called frequently just to say he loved her and how he would leave her with nothing someday. He broke into her house and gathered everything that wasn't nailed down made a staggering pile in the center of the living room before disappearing again to await a response. Zach's initial plan was to meet him at the same bar they'd been introduced, slip some GHB into his drink, load Anthony into a van with a bag of rattlesnakes and drive him to another undisclosed location in the desert. They'd tie his arms and legs to stakes in the ground, wrap the burlap sack around his head, and leave him. Even though he had no immediate family, no one would really notice his absence. Zach gave Anthony a second option instead, offering the private a small stipend to leave Albuquerque and never return. Lisa and I hauled our baggage to the nearest bus depot. I was fixated on why crazy Anthony was considered so fucking crazy. 
but she refused to go into specifics. We were on our way to Ybor City in a late check-in at a hostel founded by a fan of Graham Parsons near the Woodlawn Cemetery. Graham's place was established in 1991 and then advertised as an adventurous B&B complete with a BYOB bar, Parsons Pub, bike rentals, music-themed rooms with swamp cooler ventilation, heated in-ground jacuzzi, and was close to Bayshore Boulevard, the world's largest continuous sidewalk stretching 4.5 miles north along the coastline. I felt trapped in a maze of rock and country memorabilia, locked screen doors, tiki torches, and broken beer bottles. There was a winding staircase that led above the swamp cooler unit and rank rooms. The manager, Graham's brother-in-law or cousin, was less than cordial when we arrived and made several scrutinizing glances at Lisa's cleavage before showing us to the room, informing us that the stairs led to the eagle's nest, looking out over the tombstones across the street. In our room, we choked down the tension with hummus and pita bread before renting bikes from the simulated railroad station and heading out for the Hyde Park District. The jacuzzi was lukewarm, and its murky tinge was accentuated by the Christmas lights surrounding the deck. At first it was easy to ignore, but as the staff workers took their respected seats at Parsons Pub leering at Lisa's bikini top, we quickly dried off and made our way to the eagle's nest. Lisa took the opportunity to call her father. Yes! I could hear him yelling over the phone as if he just won a long-standing bet with a co-worker. Is he black? Although she had dated black men before, Lisa's lack of potential suitors had been noticed by her family. Lately, she claims that if I drink too much, I open my psyche up to paradimensional influences and become possessed by the malevolent spirits of her ex-boyfriends. She laughs at the irony of it all, but remains ever vigilant about the fact that I understand my limits. I'm at a disadvantage here. I can only think within the dimensions of my monolinguistic thought apparatus, which ultimately reverts to a series of drunken slurs and low growls. And trying to describe her personality under the influence is like trying to describe a panoramic view with tunnel vision. <laughs> 